We'll be in Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 19. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'll bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come uh, when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And and what will be the sign when, when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. And he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness." Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand on how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some, will, uh, uh, some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So this passage is interesting as we, as we continue in the Gospel of Luke. Because uh, it actually stretches, this whole section stretches all the way through verse 38. That was a little much to try to cover in one sermon. And, uh, and I don't actually have an issue of covering large chunks. We're going to cover a whole chapter in the book of Judges tonight. Uh, but this is... this is so packed with so much prophecy and so much like potential question marks that would be floating above our heads as we read the text uh, that it's, it's going to be good to at least break it up into at least two parts. And so uh, understanding Jesus' words is not always easy. Sometimes it can be very difficult. Sometimes Jesus is very easy to understand, but it's hard to do what he says, right? Uh, now, there's other times where you're like, I don't understand what Jesus means, let alone can I do what he says, Uh, But we need to do more than just kind of throw up our hands and just kind of walk away. And Jesus is telling us, uh, uh, you know, about what so many people want to know. What's going to happen in the future? (laughs) It's just he's not telling us the things we want to hear about necessarily. But we need to ask, what what is Jesus telling us about the future? How should that affect us, uh, our lives as Christians? And so today we're going to tackle the first section of this text uh, through verse 19 as Jesus helps us to prepare for the future. And then secondly, promises to give us gifts that will transform hardship into blessing. And we're going to look at each of those this morning. And so first, uh, Jesus teaches us how to prepare for the future in verses 5 through 11. And he tells us that, that in preparing for the future, we need to prepare for what I would call unthinkable destruction in verses 5 and 6. 
Now some of the people around him, presumably his own disciples, are looking around at the temple and and wonder at the stones and the offerings uh, being given. And they're just standing back and amazed. I mean, this is just like the greatest thing that has been ever built. And really, we need to get a sense because we we only have a very like a subsection of the uh, of of the like a support of the wall is left. The thing is called the Wailing Wall in Israel. It's the only one part of the temple that's really left. And so we kind of go, yeah, well, of course that thing got destroyed. It's like, you know, but it's like the Titanic. You know, nobody treated the Titanic like the Titanic before it sunk. Right? Before it sank, it was the unsinkable ship. They're like, people were looking at this thing like, this thing's amazing. There's no way it's going down. Until it goes down, and then and now and now it's now it's a byword for uh, for uh, arrogance and and to, and for dest- and for destruction and for ships that in fact do sink. So, uh, but we need to kind of envision the temple here. It, it's the whole temple courtyard court area. It, it's one hundred and seventy two thousand square yards. It's massive. It's if if it was still standing today, it would be the largest. Uh, a religious site in the world. Its walls were stood above 80 feet above the main roads. Its construction involved 10,000 workers, 1,000 priests, and 1,000 oxen, all engaged in masonry and carpentry. Now, um, I would love to see oxen engaged in masonry and carpentry, but you know what I mean. So what, what they produced, though, is no less staggering. Right, stones for temple walls that were ranging from four to fifteen tons apiece, and those were just the little ones. They, they're, they're, they're the, some of the foundation stones for the temple they built uh, are, are way they weigh in at an estimated four hundred and fifteen tons in one single stone. And I mean, we we stand back as you know as moderns going marveling at how did these ancients do this. How in the world did they do this? How did they cut these stones? How did they move them? <laughs> and yet they did. Combine all that with the beautiful artistry, craftsmanship, and the gold. It's no wonder that people stood agape at the sight of the temple. So why does Jesus come along and rain on everyone's fun parade? Right? You're like, ah, oh, I hate that guy when he does that. You know, we're having a good time. And I was just, well, you know, actually. Right? And you're like, oh. Well, two reasons. Jesus is reminding us that we ought not to trust in the appearances of things, whether it's a building, a ship, or a person. When I was uh, in Russia in uh, 2003 uh, on a missions trip, we took a train uh, up at the end of our trip, we were there for two months in Moscow, Russia, and we took for two months, and we went up, and, and then we went up to Saint Petersburg. I spent some time there, and in St. Petersburg, it's the fourth largest museum in the world called the Hermitage. And, it, and the building itself is actually, it was, it was one of the czar's uh, spring palace that he would go to. So the building itself is actually history. The building itself is artistry. Every room is artistry. He brought in architects from Italy and France and brought all these people in to make these exquisite designs. That's why actually St. Petersburg has all these canals because he had Italian architects uh, working there to help design the city. Uh, but the building itself, it just the historical significance, every detail of the room itself is artwork. 
We, we spent so much time in there that we didn't have time to even go explore the gardens out back, which themselves were also artwork. And yet Jesus reminds us that all that glitters is not gold, and even the gold that does glitter will eventually lose its shine and will eventually come a tumbling down. Further, the grandness of religious buildings, be it a temple or even a church building, does not mean that godliness lay within or that it will last forever. And second, unlike everyone else, Jesus actually knows what's about to happen in just a few decades to the temple. It will be destroyed. Uh, And several decades later, uh, in around 68 AD, the Jews are going to revolt Uh, Rome at that time is kind of at the end of Nero's reign, and Nero was actually a pretty decent emperor early on, and then he went a little crazy, and uh, um, and so at the end he died, and the the succession of the emperor in Rome was always this chaotic thing, and there was this, uh, in, in 69 was this year of the four emperors, the year of the four emperors of Rome. And, uh, it, it, and, so, and so one of the reasons the Jewish revolt happened is they're like, hey, Rome's in chaos. Now's the time. We, this is the time for us to do that. And, and the, Roman, and the Ro- four Roman emperors were really distracted, fighting amongst each other. Uh, and, uh, and so they didn't really deal with that until they were actually uh, ready. But eventually, one of those emperors uh, who ended up winning, winning the day, Vespasian, uh, sent his son Titus to put an end to the Jewish revolt and ensure that it would not happen again by utterly and completely destroying the temple. In fact, uh, we still have today, you can go see the Arch of Titus, which is dedicated to uh, his destruction of the temple. And you can see them carrying in, and you can identify uh, the, the, um, uh, the, they, have the, they have the big candle. Right, so the big they have the big candle. They have the table of presents. They have all the things that you can read about in the book of Exodus. You can see that inscribed on the wall as they're taking all the goods from the temple and marching them into Rome in their victory parade. The and so as I mentioned earlier, the only thing that's left today that you can really see that's part that that is the temple is part of the underground foundation, which is what we call the Wailing Wall. But someone will say, "Aha, though." There's literally a one stone on top of another. Jesus was wrong, right? But, uh, uh, but if someone were to say to you, my house, is just, my, house is just, my house is burned down completely, and you went and you saw part of one wall that was not fully burned, you wouldn't be like, liar! You know, like, ha-ha! You'd be like, no, I'm, I'm sorry, man. That, that stinks. You know, I, I hope the insurance comes through for you. So, unless it was arson, then I hope you go to jail. But... Uh, but he says, don't, uh, but he says, don't put your trust in man-made temples, put your trust in the one who declares and proves that he is the temple that cannot be destroyed, that he is the place of sacrifice and prayer when physical temples fail, which is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so he says, look, uh, be prepared for the destruction of these physical buildings, these physical things, these, these appearances of things that seem indestructible. They are quite destructible. And while that's going on, you have to be careful. He says, watch out. He says, do not be duped by messianic nonsense in verses 7 through 8. 
The people and presumably the disciples, they want to know very understandably. So when are these things going to happen, Jesus? If that's going to happen, tell me when. I want to know. And Jesus' answer is, he's not going to answer them directly. He says, ah, oh, but, but you got to watch out. The people are going to try to come and fool you. Going to try and come. That's the major issue. It's not when the temple's going to fall. It's the fact that people are going to try and come and trick you and deceive you. Now, um, for the Jews and for Jesus' disciples, the, 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 if for the temple to be destroyed basically means the end of the world. Not metaphorically, like literally, I believe that would be the end of the world, like happening at that time. So that's why, one of the reasons they're pressing this. And Jesus says, no, 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 you need to, you, you need to, you need to be careful. Um, In fact, he says, I'm going to tell you what not to look for. I'm going to tell you what to avoid before I tell you what to look for. And he says, there are going to be people who are going to come and they're going to have a message. They're going to first they're going to come. They're going to claim that they are the promised one, that they're the Messiah. And and or secondly, they're going to claim that the time has come, that the end is here. They're going to have that billboard sign that says the end is near. We see you so, so often pictured in New York. Jesus warns us not to go after them, not to follow them or to follow their teachings. Indeed, the world has had no shortage of false teachers claiming to be the Messiah or claiming to know the end of all things. Even in the first century after Christ's death, several false messiahs popped up modeling themselves after Moses or Joshua. And that has continued on. Even in recent years, we've seen false messiahs claiming to be the Savior. However, um, uh, um, uh, however, even though we have uh, that, it, there's there's less there's less direct, especially in America. There's less direct people saying I'm the Messiah, but there is a kind of a false messiahism and false prophets that arise who claim to speak for God, who say, "Well, I'm not the Messiah, but let me tell you what God told me." And just like, well, how do I verify that? You can't because God told me it. And he told me he told me he doesn't want you to check this. Right. He just wants you to believe me and tell me and do what I'd say. And so and and we've seen this. And so Jesus says, don't be suckered in by deceivers and by snakes. But also don't be duped. By worldly non-signs. Don't be don't be duped by world uh, that messianic nonsense or worldly non-signs. Uh, because he says, look, there's stuff that's going to happen that is not the sign of the end. It's got to happen before the end comes, but it doesn't mean the end is here. And it's, it's very interesting. It's, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a video that uh, Matt Peden likes to show when we do, um, when, in the past when we've done the um, Just War Theory study for the, for the base, for the Navy base. And so, uh, and, one, and one of the things he highlights, uh, highlights it, uh, is they highlighted that in every, almost every, basically every, generations of, every generation of Christians has believed that they were the last Every generation of Christians has said, they look around, they go, well, this is it. This is definitely going to end real soon. All right? That's been true every century, every generation. So how do we know when the end's going to come? Well, when, when the end comes. That's kind of, we're, we're going to know. You're not going to miss it. All right? Jesus says, don't worry. You're not going to miss it. And, uh, and so he says, look, but let me tell you what's going to happen. And, and when this happens, know that it doesn't mean the end's here. He says there's going to be wars. There's going to be tumult, strife, nations rising against nations, kingdoms rising against kingdoms. You're like, that feels like end of the world stuff. But then we start thinking about, well, we had the war to end all wars. And then we had so much fun doing that one, we did it again. And then we've had kind of these 
non-official wars, you know, going on and, 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 and one official war. Like, it's just kind of like, it's just, it, you know, we've had this, we've had nations rising against nations. We have, there's a war going on right now. There's, there's wars going on that we don't even aware about because the countries aren't uh, essentially deemed as important that we need to know about. But he also says there's going to be natural disasters, earthquakes, famines, pestilences, terrors, uh, vague but noticeable signs in the heavens or the sky. I mean, every time, I mean, it's funny because I read that list and I'm like, every time one of the things happens, there's some guy that gets on YouTube and says, the end has come, right? This great earthquake. I mean, you know, whenever there's a blood moon, there's always some guy out there, right? That's going like, the, the end of the world is coming. So send me money. I don't understand how that, those two connect, but they seem to connect them. They're like, the, the world's end. You don't need the money, but go ahead and send it to us. And we'll help you. I don't know. I I don't get the logic there. But Jesus says these things will characterize the life of humanity until the very end. And so uh, and and so what that means, there's a couple implications here is 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 one one thing that this really helps to set our expectations of the world rightly. And that's important because it means that war is and natural disasters are going to be a factor in human existence until Christ returns, until the end. There will never be a time when humanity is in absolute peace. With all apologies to all the Star Trek fans, uh, uh, humanity never resolves all its problems by just getting rid of money. There will be more peaceful times in human existence, and there will be less peaceful times in human existence. But there will always be war. There will always be natural disasters. Nations ought to seek to live peacefully with one another to preserve human life. Uh, but, and when war does occur, it ought to be carried out in a just manner. So you, for more information, could, could attend our Just War Theory study. Uh, but this also means that we, we don't need to think that the world is ending when a war breaks out or when a terrible natural disaster occurs or an odd event in the sky. Every time... Uh, there is one of these things, and the prophecy nuts get out there, and they start chattering and telling you the world is about to end, right? You know, one, one of the reformers uh, in, you know, hundreds of years ago who actually mentored John Calvin uh, wrote that the upshot of this passage is that we don't have to fear those things which are to happen according to God's providence. We don't need to be afraid of them. Why? Because God has planned these things. Because Jesus said these things had to happen before the end would come. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be horrified or, or shocked at the loss of life in a tragic disaster or in, a, or in the unjust uh, just killing of innocents in war. Or that we should, do, we should not do everything we can to mitigate uh, those things. Uh, but in the end, we don't need to lose our minds think, you know, adding to that this panic that the world's about to end. And yet, all of those things do point forward, point us forward to the reality that the world will end. That these horrors, uh, these awful things in the world are not forever. They will not be eternal. They will come to an end. But for the moment, Jesus tells us to prepare ourselves for the present time. That would, that, that, so that we will not be fooled, duped by messianic nonsense or worldly non-signs of the end. Which would take our eyes off the mission that he has given to us. 
that might cast doubt on the truth of God's precious promises in the gospel. And so Jesus helps us to prepare for the future by setting our expectations rightly. And then he addresses the issue of persecution. And in so doing, he, he, give, he promises these, these, what we're calling the transforming gifts. He, he promises to give us these kind of transforming gifts. Uh, because in addressing um, the, these, this, the persecution of Christians in verses 12 to 19, uh, Jesus is not glib about these things. It's not like, oh, you know, the, you'll be put to death, you know, whatever. Um, he's not downplaying the serious nature of suffering or affliction. Jesus shows us, though, how by his grace and power, he is, he, he, uh, these things are transformed. How he transforms suffering. Forced testimony, betrayal, hatred, and death. And he transforms them into things for our good and God's glory. And so first, he, in verses 12 to 13, he, he, he shows us how his first gift transforms persecution into an opportunity to testify about him. In addition to all the craziness that he talked about before, about these false messiahs and, and, and his false teaching and, and natural disasters and wars and all these things, he says not only that, he says the enemies of God, the, enemy is, the enemies of the church, will lay hands upon his disciples and they're not going in for a hug. They want to persecute the church. And as such, Christians will be arrested. They will be brought before the authorities. And authorities that are low, authorities that are high, governors and kings on account of Christ. And, and, uh, and I you know, remember reading uh, Justin Martyr, one of the first uh, Christian apologists in the second century, writing a letter to the emperor saying, look, if Christians do bad things, let them be prosecuted according to the law. If they do things worthy of death according to Roman law, then execute them. But please stop killing us for being Christians. Stop convicting us of crimes simply for being Christians because we're actually really good citizens. We don't lie. We don't cheat. We don't defraud. We actually work hard and we pay our taxes and we support the state. <laughs> and like, we are actually really good citizens. You want Christians as citizens. Please stop killing us. And we see this is true even, in the, even before we get out of the, the biblical era, out of the, out of the time of the apostles, where, uh, where Paul is standing before the Jewish authorities on the account of Christ. We're standing before the Roman authorities and testifying before uh, Agrippa and Festus and Felix. Jesus said it. And it was true that Christians had the opportunity and they continue to have the opportunity to speak about him about the gospel, and to invite others in their audience into the fold, even kings, even governors. And what was meant to be a means of silence, Christ has made into a loudspeaker for the gospel and the kingdom. That's the first gift. The second gift that he gives is, is where forced testimony uh, becomes sacred witness in verses 14 to 15. As Christians were brought before the authorities and charged with the ridiculous crimes, uh, Jesus says that they didn't need to fear because if you're arrested and dragged before the court, don't freak out about what you're going to say. He says, I will tell you what to say. I will give you the words. I will give you the mouth. I will give you wisdom that they can't even contradict. Now, Jesus is not saying, therefore, 
Uh, There should be no sermons. There should be no prepared speeches. Don't think before you speak. Please. We need more people who will think before they speak. All right? Um, but, uh, uh, But he is simply giving his people a deeply precious promise. And at the same time, conveying a a, a profound theological truth. That Jesus is promising that even when we are our least prepared and most intimidated and vulnerable, that Jesus is there with us to help us. We don't have to worry about what we're going to say because he will give us the words in the moment, the words that need to be said to accomplish his purpose. Because wisdom is not merely a matter of just, you know, sewing together thoughts and ideas and spewing them out. But, it, but true wisdom is, is given out in reliance upon the Holy Spirit in the moment of our need. And the greater our need, then the more that he will meet us. But consider that Jesus is also saying that he will, even though he hasn't disclosed how, he will somehow... Be with his people even after he is gone from the earth. Now we know this side of the cross, this side of the ascension, this side of Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost where the Spirit comes down. We know that the way this happens is that the Holy Spirit is living in God's people communicating the presence of Christ so intimately and personally that the scriptures speak as though Christ actually lives in us. And it's not because the Holy Spirit and Christ are interchangeable, because the power of the Spirit is so profound and and clear that is communicating Christ, and it is as though He lives in us through the Spirit. And therefore, even in those moments where Christians may seem the most alone and the most vulnerable, Christians are never in fact alone because the Lord is with us. So, So Jesus, by the Holy Spirit says he will transform a time when we are being forced to speak into a time of sacred witness. Will God, that God will use to speak his words and to use for his own glory. And finally, Jesus says the third gift he will give is that he will make it such that betrayal, hatred, and death, even death, become endurance, preservation, and eternal life. Verses 16 to 19. For the sake of Christ, Jesus says, we will be hated. And I always caveat that to make sure because some people will say, well, people don't like me because I'm just outspoken and committed to the truth about Jesus. But there is a chance that that person could be a jerk. Right? And maybe that's why they don't like them. Right? So we need to check ourselves and make sure that if we're getting a bunch of opposition from all different places, that we're like, okay, is there something that I'm not communicating properly? Is there, is, is it, is the problem in how I'm speaking? Is it like, do I constantly in conflict? Or is it just, no, I'm, I'm really just presenting the gospel. I'm really just living for Christ. And I'm really, and I'm just running into people who are opposing me. That's real too. That is real too. But we need to, we need to be honest and we need to do some self-examination as well. But Jesus says, that we will be hated for, his, for the sake of his name. But he says that hatred for him won't stop outside our homes. He says that even the closest of human bonds, 
family relationships, immediate family relationships, parents and, and brothers and sisters, we're supposed to be the closest of bonds, will be rent asunder as relatives betray one another because of Christ. And some, he says, will be put to death. But there's an oddity here. He says some of you will be put to death. But then in verse 18, he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. So which one is it? What, what, what do we mean here? What does Jesus mean here? Now, some have said Jesus is just being hyperbolic. He's just exaggerating to make a meaning, saying that some, while some of you would die, most of you will be fine. I do not agree with that. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. Um, I mean, it's true, but I don't think it's what, he, what he's saying. Jesus is saying here that even in death, you will not die. I mean, that was Paul's comfort. That is, that is the comfort. When, when Polycarp in the, in the second century was brought before the fire and they said, renounce Christ or we'll burn you alive. What did he say? He says, you threaten me with fire that will last for a moment, but you face a fire that will last in eternity. It is unquenchable. I go to be with my master and Lord who has, been, who has blessed me and been faithful to me these 80-something years. You think I'm going to betray him now? Uh-uh, you got another thing coming. I go to him. And unless you repent, you will go there into the flame. Even in death, the Christian cannot die. Even in death, not a hair on our head is harmed. Isn't this what Jesus promised in the gospel for those who trust in him? Where he says elsewhere that though we may die physically, we will never die. That we will in fact live eternally with him. Indeed, by holding to the gospel promises, even in death, persecution becomes merely the entrance into the fullness of life. Now, Jesus is definitely dealing with the worst and most extreme of painful circumstances that any Christian could face in this life. Persecution unto painful and torturous death. That's what he's dealing with. He's not saying every Christian must face that or will face that. But if, it, if what he says is true about that, how much more is it true about, about, about how Christ upholds us and blesses us and, who, and we who are dealing with afflictions that are, can't even be compared to those things? And yet we doubt. We fear. We're afraid God has abandoned us when we don't stand before the fire. We don't stand before the executioner's blade. But he says, even if you do, I will be there and they cannot harm a hair on your head. How might Jesus transform your suffering and your affliction into an opportunity for sacred witness today? How might he transform the hatred, the genuine hatred an opposition you receive on account of him by even your own family members, people you love and are wounded by, how might he transform that into eternal joy and peace? Jesus says he will. He says he will. I've apparently been on a J.C. Ryle kick lately because I feel like I quote him every week now with the old Anglican bishop. Um, I think he died on Trinity Sunday in the year 1900. 
known as the Man of Granite. Although he was a man of granite to everyone else, but apparently he was a big softy at home with his family. <laughs> so, but he wrote this. He said, nothing is so calculated to chill the heart and damp the faith of a Christian as indulgence in unscriptural expectations. Nothing is going to just throw a big wet blanket over your faith and increase your doubt than believing, having false expectations that don't come from the Bible about your life and what God owes you and what he's planned for you. If we think the Christian life is going to be easy because we're Christians and we're really good Christians or we're really nice Christians or we've done this thing or that thing or good thing or attended that or whatever, then, then we're going to have a really rough go. We have a really rough go. We're going to have a hard time explaining Christian history. What we see is that Christ's presence and power can transform even the worst situations for our good and his glory. This morning in Sunday school in the youth, we were talking about Philippians 4.13. Right, guys? Philippians 4.13. And how he says, I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. What all things? I can be hungry for days. I can lack clothing. That's what he's talking about. I can suffer. I can also have a lot. And I can have plenty of food. I can do all things. I can, in any circumstance, I've learned the secret of contentment, of how to be happy in any circumstance in life. How? Through the strength of Christ that he gives me. That's why I told the students, this is why I I don't take the verse to the guy who's trying to make the baseball team. I take this verse into the ICU at the hospital. I take it to the, to the terminal cancer patient. I take it to the people who are struggling with immense things that I don't even have a, 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 the experience in to understand what they're going through. But I do know that I can walk in with this promise that even in those circumstances hard and as many tears of grief and sorrow may be shed, the strength of Christ is yours. And you will endure, not because of you, not because of your faith, not because you're strong, but because Christ is good and he is strong and he is with you. So Christ does not let us down by telling us that the terrible things won't be terrible. Telling us that the church won't go through hard times. Rather, he says that when they are terrible... He will reveal the foolish. He will reveal to the world that the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of men. That the gospel is greater. And so, don't be taken in today by false messiahs or false signs, promising you this thing or that, telling you that the end of all things is at hand. Rather, look to the cross. Look to the empty tomb. Look to the ascension and the present reign of your Savior and you will be able to rejoice in the best moments of your life or the worst until he does return and we enter into his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus we do have that faithful Savior, that glorious Redeemer. Who, who transforms our sufferings and afflictions and hardships. And even while they continue to be unimaginably difficult. Gives us the power and strength to endure. Gives us grace when we fail. When our faith fails. To lift us up. To restore us. And to bless us. So Lord we pray that we would take Jesus' words in. 
And that we would go out today not with a strengthened confidence in ourselves as good Christian people, but a confidence in Christ that will prevent us from being taken in by false Christs and false messiahs and being taken in by, uh, by, by misreading the, the, the events of the world. And that we would see the afflictions that lay before us, that we feel even in our very bodies. And that we would look to Christ as He transforms these things, as opportunities for sacred witness, as opportunities, Lord, and, 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 for, and to transform even opposition and painful hatred and anger that we receive because of our faith in Christ, to transform that into life and joy and peace. Lord, we pray that you would do this. We pray that you would do it by your Son. We pray you would do it according accordance with your word, with your Spirit's help. We pray this all in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.